Welcome to the Pantsuit Nation podcast. Pantsuit Nation is an online community of 3.8 million people who have come together to resist the current administration through activism, advocacy, and the power of personal narrative. My name is Courtney Tunis, and I'm here with Libby Chamberlain. Hello. And we are, um, we were actually face-to-face just a mere 72 hours ago at the United States of Women Conference, which is really exciting. It was amazing. I mean, it was amazing on a lot of different levels. It was nice to be in Los Angeles. It was hot and sunny, and it was like Mm -hmm. a good change of pace after a long winter. But um, yeah, we were there for the United States of Women's Summit, which was just incredible. It was a two-day event. The first day was just packed. I mean, like literally packed from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. with um, incredible main stage events. I mean, we saw Michelle Obama speak in the flesh, which uh, I don't think I'll ever get over. Uh, but I know. along with, and she was like, interviewed by Tracy Ellis Ross, who's just like hilarious and wonderful, and they're two like so radiant people. Just oh, it was great. Yes, we also saw. I mean, d- yeah, the lineup was was amazing. Elaine Welteroth did a panel with Kamala Harris and Yara Shahidi and uh, Brittany Packnett, uh, which was incredible. There was a a pretty uh, epic like co-presentation between Jane Fonda and Patrice Cullors, which uh, I think I said to you before, I was like, I that's like not a mashup, I would imagine. And and yet they both just like kind of brought the house down with what they were saying. They really did. They brought ever. I mean, people were on their feet. It was incredible. It was such a powerful, um, I think, combination of, of women that um, are coming from such different places and addressing kind of different different communities but with this like incredible message of solidarity um it was really amazing yeah and one of my other favorites was in the very beginning of the uh main stage event um Ai-jen Poo, who you've had on the podcast uh if you're listening and haven't heard the episode with Ai-jen Poo, please go back and, and find it she's amazing um with uh Monica Ramirez and Dolores Huerta and um I, I, like I just kind of was agape just listening to them and everything that they were saying was so powerful. And then there were all of these breakout sessions and panels. You had to walk around and just like randomly, you know, bump into people. Like I saw Carmen Perez, who's one of the national co-chairs of the Women's March. Um, I saw Tina Chen, who, uh, you know, worked with, you know, so closely with Michelle Obama and is now working in the Time's Up campaign and also helped organize this event. I mean, it was just like wandering around, like just yeah, basking was, in the glow of like feminist power. Exactly. <laughs> it was like wandering around in a sea of people that you idolize. Um, I had the incredible opportunity to go to a panel that um, featured Ilhan Omar and also um, Andrea Jenkins, two people who we have previously given golden pantsuits to for being just really amazing, powerful women. And they were so inspiring. Um, I came away. I already am a a champion of local government, having um, worked in the mayor's office in Boston for one summer. And um, I just like... Talking to people that are working on the local level and really getting a sense of how critical that is when you, the ripple effect that can happen when you're changing things at your city, your county, and then state level, um, I really was excited. Um, But also Libby and I both separately got a chance to meet Yara Shahidi, which was like... I, and this wasn't I'm like special pantsuit nation access. Like no, it wasn't like no. we were given any sort of, you know, like insider introduction. We both literally just like ran into her. It was uh, on separate occasions. Right. <laughs> 
And I was so deeply uncool because I was not <laughs> ready for it. I All I said, I think, like four times over and over was just, you're so inspiring. I love you so much. You're so inspiring. I was so crazy. But she really <laughs> liked my shirt, which was so cool. And I was like, oh, my God, you're very fashionable and you like my shirt. I mean, I think she liked it because of the sassy feminist saying, not because it was like particularly flattering in cut, but um, we got a photo and she was just like, I, um, I don't know. It's it, meeting someone like Yara. I have, I've long since dispensed with the idea that you can't have um, idols or people that you look up to who are much younger than you are. Um, I feel like, you know, the children are a future and the future is now. And she is one of those people that is using her platform and using her voice. And she is thoughtful about how she educates herself on issues. And so she can speak thoughtfully about issues. And I think that's a model that we can all um, we can all learn from. Um, so yeah, anyway, nerded out super hard. Libby got to, uh, shake her hand, I think, or touch her arm I or did. something. <laughs> yes. All of the above. <laughs> I think, um, uh, there was another woman with her who I, I think was her mom. Um, because like there was an equal, like an equivalent radiance coming from her. And I also was deeply mm-hmm. uncool, but we also get to spend some time uh, with the, our team, with the women who have been volunteering with us now for, you know, over 18 months. Um, some of them, Courtney and I, you and I had never met in person before, which is just yeah. unbelievable to think we work so closely. We know each other so well. They're very, very dear, close women um, that, you know, we've built these incredible relationships with. And, you know, in some ways it's sort of incidental that we've never met face to face. On the other hand, um, it was really great to be able to give them a hug and, you know, have a little cocktail in, in the evening as well. Yeah. Um, and so. just, it was really funny. I was telling, I said at the dinner, we're sitting around the table and it was sounded like our slack chat out loud like right. everyone you, you know it was <laughs> just online, like oh yeah, yeah the i can imagine that we talk to each having other. this mm-hmm. yeah having this conversation in slack except it's not your avatar it's your actual face which is wonderful um yeah so we we had a really great um great weekend and i um yeah, I just feel so lucky to have that incredible team of people that we work with. So shout out to uh, the Pantsuit Nation team. You're the best. You uh, you keep this place running. So thank you to you. Yes. And I'm really excited to move into our guest for this week. So uh, Courtney, do you want to introduce? I am absolutely thrilled today that Deborah Cleaver is joining us on the podcast. She has been working at the intersection of technology and democracy since 2004, and she currently serves as the founder and CEO of Vote.org, which is a nonprofit that leverages technology to permanently increase voter turnout. And I'm going to let her tell you even more about it. So welcome to the podcast, Deborah. Um, thank you so much for having me. So I would love to hear the origins of Vote.org. What got you started? How did you get this thing off the ground? Oh, wow. That's actually, the answer to that um, goes back pretty far. So Vote.org is uh, my third civic engagement project starting in 2000. Basically, I've been starting and running civic engagement projects like um, as a passion project since 2004, and I would have a day job, and then I would go home, 
and work on whatever civic engagement project I had. So the first one I was involved in, I didn't start it, but I helped run it, was a a partisan project called Swing the State in 2004, where we would send, people would sign up with us online and we would send them into swing states to do voter registration and GOTV work. And that uh, project was partisan in that we were like, we must do everything in our power to keep George W. Bush from being reelected to office. Um, you know, it was a, a successful project in that we moved tons of people from red and blue states into swing states. Not successful in that George W. Bush was reelected to office, and we all know uh, the outcome of that one. Sure. And so that was 2004, and then we were somewhat active in 2006. And at the end of 2006, I turned to a group of friends. We were at this brand new conference, which is now called Netroots. At the time, it was called Yearly Close. Uh, so it was this brand new political conference. And I said I wanted to start another project, but I wanted to focus on already registered voters who had some sort of impediment that was keeping them from voting. Because after 2004, I started to wonder if our country didn't have a voter registration problem as much as a voter turnout problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, is there any group of already registered voters who are probably having trouble casting ballots for some reason. And then the key thing was, I was like, that we can help using the internet because I never want to go door to door again as long as I live. (laughs) So someone was like, what about absentee voters? Is anyone doing anything around absentee voters? Keep in mind, this was 2006. I was like, no, everyone is working on voter registration. So it took us about a year to get it together. But very early in 2008, we launched Long Distance Voter, which was dedicated to increasing voter turnout by making it easier for people to vote absentee. And there was nothing fancy about Long Distance Voter. It was just a page for each state, and it literally gave you the steps to vote absentee. But what was interesting about Long Distance Voter is the Internet was completely silent on how to do this. There were 10 of us working on it. And each of us called five secretaries of state and made them tell us, like, how you voted absentee in their state. Um, And, like, eight or nine states didn't even have forms that you could use. So we, like, created forms. You know, we read the election code. We created forms. And we launched. We had no staff. We had no money. I mean, like, I learned a little bit about search engine optimization. And within the first six months, we had half a million visitors because it turned out people were asking Google how to vote absentee. And we were the only answer. We were the only answer. And Google was like, I internet. don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, after, after a little bit, because we learned about search engine optimization, like Google was like, ask long distance voter. Um, awesome. So I kept I kept running long distance voter like just as a passion project. I ran it from. 2008 to 2013, just as a hobby. Um, And it turned out, this is funny, because we didn't know at the time. In 2012, you know, obviously, we had a voter registration tool up on the site. It was Rock the Votes tool, but we had no program for voter registration. We just, like, did some research on when the deadlines were, and we got our information up first. And because of search engines, people were finding us. And we registered 105,000 people to vote that year and we didn't know that was a big deal because we figured obviously if we could register 105,000 people to vote and at that point it was just me and my my buddy Carl working on the site that obviously all the groups with funding must have registered literally millions of people to vote um, 
But it turned out when the independent voter registration report came out that we were like top 15 in the country. Um, wow. And the team that does the, the independent voter registration report, you know, they ask you for your budget and all that. And they called me and they were like, hey, there's a typo in your budget. And I was like, oh, what did I say it was? And they were like 5,300. And I was like, yeah, maybe maybe 5,200, maybe 54, because they thought <laughs> I meant 540,000. And I was like, I can check our taxes. And they were like, no, that's that's okay. They were like, so you don't actually have a budget. And I was like, well, we don't have a team either or an office or funding. It's like, I think I threw like a party in the house, like a fundraiser and that, you know, we raised like 5K. Um, have I given you an answer yet? So, okay, now, now I'll start to get into relevant stuff. So in 2013, I was, you know, working at a, a tech company, which is what I'd been doing professionally for a while. And I, I called my boss a misogynistic prick because he was, um, and then found <laughs> myself without the, the burden of full-time employment uh, and the burden, you know, the burden of a paycheck and all of that. And uh, yeah, entrepreneur sounds, sounds yeah, they're oh, such a drain on your emotional <laughs> capacity to have to worry about payday. Much, much better to just know it's not coming. And uh, entrepreneur <laughs> sounds better than, than unemployed. So I was like, I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, and also, I mean, it's like people had been telling me that I should make long distance voter my full time job. So started like consulting and thinking about maybe fundraising. And I think in 2013, maybe I think I raised like 25K. And in 2014, I raised a little bit more money and we started building software to help people vote absentee. And in 2015, we won the night news challenge for elections and got some money. And I realized we had outgrown the name long distance voter and started uh, looking around for like better domain names mm-hmm. and cold emailed someone I barely knew was like, you should email the guy who owns vote.org to see if he'll sell it to you. So I did. And he shocked me by responding and we negotiated for about six months. And then on December 26, 2015, I made the first payment on the votes.org domain name and got the DNS. And then on January 1st, I emailed my board and I was like, should I go on payroll? So I bought the (laughs) vote.org domain before I was on payroll. I bought it in December 2015, went on payroll January 1st. And vote.org actually launched April 1st, 2016. Like people think we've been around forever, but no, we just had our two-year anniversary. Okay, that was a very long-winded answer, <laughs> but you guys did ask me how I started Vote.org. So yes, uh, yes. That, I cued that, that up intentionally. Um, I had a much like longer um, bio for you, but I was like, let's hear from Deborah about how she got where she is now because um, I think it's such a great um, – example of like what a passion project looks like as it moves forward and becomes something that you can do um, full time. And now, like you said, people think it's a household name that's been around forever. And that's, you know, because of the incredible impact. Thank you. Thank you. And they do. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, of course, votes.org. I registered to vote there in, you know, the 80s. And I'm like, the internet didn't <laughs> exist in the 80s. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> it's so it's been, amazing. It's been a wild ride, but so much fun. Yeah, I know. No, I remember seeing that on Facebook um, a couple months ago when you said that two year, and I was like, "Wait, I you know, Pansu Nation has been around for 
a year and a half. Like, how is this possible? Because you, I feel like we, um, you know, as a very new organization are stepping, you know, into an arena with all of these incredible legacy organizations that have been doing this work for much longer. And I, you know, hearing that story helps me kind of frame it. Obviously you have been doing, you know, the same work for a really long time. Um, so now I'm not as like, man, Deborah's only been doing this for two years. We got to step up our game. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's so inspiring to hear all of that. And, and, um, you know, you mentioned some of your early numbers, but tell our listeners some of your successes in 2016 and 2017, um, in terms of, you know, your impact and, and, um, it's just been, I mean, I, I think it's incredible. So toot your horn a little bit about, about what you've been able to do with vote.org. Great. Okay. So the site has been live for a little bit over two years. We have had, wait, I'm trying, I'm like trying to quickly do the math in my head. I don't know why I'm suddenly blanking. I said, I believe 13 million people have visited the site um, in that time. And then more interesting, I think, is that once we started to have a little bit of money, we started to do proactive outreach, like not just waiting for people to come to the site, actively be looking for us, but uh, running these pretty aggressive media campaigns towards what's referred to as low propensity voters. That means, according to some fancy statistical modeling, they're like less likely to vote. Um, So starting, we actually started in 2016, um, where we would, this sounds creepy, but I promise it's not. Um, we started buying cell phone numbers of first unregistered voters, and we would hire people to text them one at a time to encourage them to register to vote. So we reached out to like a million people um, under 40, overwhelmingly people of color, and encouraged them to register to vote. Um, and that went really well. And then we, we turned around as soon as the deadlines passed, and we became a GOTV organization and get out the vote organization, and we proactively contacted um, just under 3 million people to let them know the election was coming and we would provide them their polling place location by running their home address for them through the Google Civic API, including on election day. We ran what, to the best of my knowledge, was the largest get out the vote drive in America. We proactively provided polling place information to just under 1 million people. Um, We we fell short by like 20,000 people, but we were literally out of numbers to contact. Um, and then last year, 2017, I, uh, I was looking at a billboard one day. I was just like standing around San Francisco and I was like, we should buy some billboards. So <laughs> the first thing that happened was in Virginia, um, you know, a, a funder asked me what I would do if I really wanted to increase turnout in an off cycle election. And I'm like, well, I would buy every billboard and write like vote and the day and date of the election. So what happened so in Virginia, we bought, I think it was only about like 50 billboards or maybe a hundred in this one pretty small area, the Hampton Roads uh, area of Virginia. But we also bought the inside and outside of like 33% of the entire transit line. Like, so every bus said oh, vote, nice. you know, Tuesday, November, I can't remember the date right now, like inside and outside. And then we ran ads on Pandora and Spotify and English and Spanish and our Spanish language ads just won awards for being like the best GOTV campaign, you know, bilingual GOTV campaign. And then we sent, um, we also bought the cell phone numbers again and we contacted like every registered person of color and every registered person like under 35 to remind them that an election was coming 
And it was really interesting because in those areas that we were active, people were voting in 2017 at the same level they were voting in 2016. There was no drop off. And then in Alabama, uh, you know, one very wealthy person asked me what I thought about the Alabama election. This was before the scandal broke. And I was like, I think it's really interesting that a Democrat and a Republican are tied in what is known as this deep red state. I think it's possible that we're going to have a Democratic senator from Alabama. And the wealthy person was telling me his political advisor was saying it would cost $20 million for someone like Doug Jones to win. And I was like, no, $20 million means TV. And no one watches TV ads anymore. Like, you're only reaching basically older, wealthier, right. whiter voters right. when totally. you run TV ads. And I was like, if I were, you know, going to be active in Alabama, I would want to specifically reach out to young people and people of color because 32% of registered voters in Alabama are black. So this guy asked me, like, how much? How much would it take to contact, like, every low propensity voter in Alabama? And I sent back, I was like, about 800 k so he did half, and the other person did half, and we bought every billboard in Alabama. We like call, wow. call, we have yes. a billboard guy. I love this and, so much. Which is a like a funny thing to have, right? I was like, somebody get the billboard guy on the phone, <laughs> right? I was like, I want to, I want to buy every billboard, and he was like, wait, what? And I was like, just how much to buy every billboard in Alabama that's not already purchased? And it, it wasn't a ton of money, so we bought every billboard in Alabama, and. Uh, Photos of that made it in the New York Times and on CNN and all that. We just wrote, vote Tuesday, December 12th. And people on the ground thought the government put them up, which was fine. We're like, that's fine. We're not trying to send people to vote.org. We're trying to send them to the polls. But no, the government right. did not put them up. And we did the same <laughs> thing. We did. And the, and the billboard pan, guy. Every, <laughs> every Pandora <laughs> spot that wasn't already purchased. We, I don't even know how many. I think our commercials played like 2 million times. And then we sent direct mail to every registered, uh, in that case, just people of color. Uh, we sent, I think, two pieces of mail reminding them to vote to every household that had like a registered black voter in it. And we bought every cell phone number and we sent, you know, reminders that it was time to vote. And when it came time for the election, I mean, A, a, a Democrat won. We have no control over the outcome. We're nonpartisan. But that was just interesting to us that a Democrat won. But what we cared about was that there was zero percent drop off between 2016 and 2017 and in our in black turnout. And which our actual goal as an organization is like reflective democracy. We want the electorate to match the uh, actual population in terms of race and income and gender. And it did in Alabama for probably yeah. the first time ever. Uh, 32 percent of this of the citizens are black. 32% of the registered voters are black and 32% of the electorate was black, which for votes.org, huge success. Cause our mission now I'll tell you is <laughs> to like work to make uh, work towards reflective democracy, which literally means we want the electorate to match the population. If the population mm. is 40% people of color, which it is in the United States, then the, the electorate should be 40% people of color. Um, and so more and more over time, we spend our time and money reaching out to people who are modeled to be low propensity voters, which means candidates ignore them. And 
we pay a lot of attention to them because we believe that Americans actually do want to vote and they will vote more frequently and they will vote with greater, like they will vote in greater numbers and with like more frequency as voting becomes more convenient and accessible. And sometimes the convenience is just, or the accessibility is just literally letting them know an election's coming. Like mm. who, Absolutely. no one, knows, no one knew that there was a senatorial election in December in 2017. That's not when we elect senators. Because our, our whole uh, GOTV message, by the way, we weren't like persuading people. We weren't like the election's important. We were literally just saying vote Tuesday, December 12th. That's all we right. did. And people were like, oh, I have to go vote. That was it. That was the whole message. There was nothing complicated about it. And it turns out it worked. It turns out if you remind people an election's coming and you tell them to go vote, they, they will. So there you go. Now you know Votes.org's entire magic, secret, proprietary <laughs> process. <That's> Billboards <laughs> and um, calendars. Um, so yeah. I, I do have to say that that's like, when you go on vote.org, that's one of the coolest things. Like you can do all kinds of things. You can register, but you can also sign up to get alerts about elections. And I think that's just absolutely brilliant. I consider myself to be like pretty plugged in, but I will find myself being like, wait, what is happening? Um, like I see, I, yeah, there was an election in the town next to me yesterday and I was like, why didn't I know that this was going on until my, I went to the library and it was a precinct. Um, but anyway, so I was wondering, (laughs) (laughs) um, so I, like, I, I, like I just said, you know, I'm a registered voter. Um, I vote. I think a lot of the people that are listening to this are, um, probably like pretty engaged in terms of that kind of thing. But I'm wondering about like, what is the next best thing that we can do besides voting ourselves? So what's the, what's the next step for an individual who wants to help with turnout and registration and achieving some of the goals that that vote.org has set out? So honestly, I would say the single best thing uh, we can do is people who are engaged and already plan on voting is remind at least five people in your network that they have to vote this November. Um, 40, so there's between a presidential and a midterm year, there's always a 33% drop off. Um, and this is this space going back, like, I think I went back 30 or so years to like figure out the pattern, which means mm. that 40 44 million people who voted in 2016, they're already registered, they've already voted at least once, you know, they know the process, if they live in a voter ID state, they already have voter ID, they're not going to vote again in 2018 without some sort of outside intervention. So as small as it seems, just commit to telling at least five of your friends and your family and your colleagues that they're going to go vote this November Um, because if every one of us who is going to vote, there's about 80 million people who will vote, like, you know, brought whatever, one more person, like increased turnout by one, we would have higher turnout this year than we did in 2016. So it seems small, but it is hugely impactful. And honestly, it's a lot more effective if someone you know tells you to go vote than if a stranger tells you to go vote. Like even, you know, vote.org, we have a great reputation. People trust us. Sometimes people think we're the government, but it's more effective if the message comes from a friend or a family or a colleague than if it comes from vote.org. So I would say that that's the biggest thing to do this year. 
Totally. And like use the FOMO too. Like that's one of our, that was kind of like our initial, um, you know, thing in Pantsuit Nation as it was sort of unintentional on my part, but I was like, well, if I can get like some cool buddies of mine all over the country to wear pantsuits to the polls and like post about it on Instagram and Facebook, then maybe, you know, some other people will see that and there'll be sort of a kind of a building momentum around it. Um, and that's something that we remain committed to sort of that initial idea in Pantsuit Nation is like, you know, social media, you know, it's, it's not like 100% as effective as like, you know, bringing along your friend literally to like go vote with you to the polls. But when you see so many people out there and, and also people that you are connected with friends, you know, around the country, people that are excited voting early, um, you know, mailing in their ballots or showing up on election day, there is something about that personal connection, um, that we just feel so important in, in that, like creating the sense of FOMO, like everyone you respect in the world is voting today and you will be a loser if you don't like <laughs> <laughs> I love just like I love get as high school as possible about it absolutely I've when been we trying... were first talking about Virginia that's what we were saying I was like no we want to create hype around this like we want to yes. market the act of voting yeah. the way Apple markets an iPhone I was like people I live in San Francisco people sleep in front of the Apple store before the new iPhone comes out. They literally sleep there on the ground. And I was like, don't tell people things like we're expecting low turnout. Tell people like everyone you know is voting on Tuesday. Everyone. Because if you say everyone you know is voting, then people are like, oh, shit, I have to go vote also. And I'm like, yes, yes, you do. You do have to go vote. So none of this, like we're expecting turnout or the young voters are apathetic. None of that is true. There's, there's no indication that anyone in America is apathetic about anything. We are one of the most hot-headed, engaged nations in the world. Uh, there's just every indication that it's, like, a little hard to vote or it happens on a Tuesday and all that. But, yes, create all the FOMO, all the FOMO yeah. in the world. You should be, like, voting is I the feel best. Like there's, I'm going to go vote There's on a Tuesday. market for, like, really cool I voted stickers, too. Like, the ones in Massachusetts <laughs> are fine. They're, like, you know, the little flag or whatever. But some other states have, like, really, really cool ones. And I see them on the internet, and I'm like, man, I would, I want that. And I feel like that's part of the, you know, you got a billboard, you got a cool sticker, throw it on Instagram, boom. 20 more people. And, you know, the vote. stickers actually come from some sort of like, I don't know what you would call it. It's not public health, but the same idea. Like the stickers are to create like a social pressure and a social validation yeah. that you voted. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's why we have them. By the way, New York City has the raddest stickers. They kind of look like a subway map. And like, I they're remember so cool. that. Yeah. Oh, I remember yeah. sticker jealousy for New York. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my, mine's fine, but when it falls off, I'm not sad. I'll, I'll say that. <laughs> Massachusetts, where do you, where do you live? Sticker your uh, okay, <laughs> you know what? Maybe we should run some sort of like campaign where we just get like everyone to call the Massachusetts like election board and be like, we need better stickers. <laughs> you know, we got to be first. I mean, honestly, the states should be competing for turnout, right? Why don't the states Absolutely. compete and be like, oh, that's a good- Ooh, we have I the love that idea in the nation? I wonder which. 
okay, I'm not going to open my laptop, but now I actually want to look to see which states have the highest <laughs> we should, turnout. It's Deborah, not we should track that. that. This is our first like official Pantsuit Nation vote.org collaboration is we're going to pit all yes. of the states against each other. And then we're going to get all of the, our state you know, lists to start competing with one another to get more people registered to vote. It's going to be, oh yeah, my God, I love that. it. Let's do this. Let's do this. Yeah. And not just register to vote, actually voting, because in any given election, 30 30 to 40 percent of the people that didn't vote are already registered to vote. And by the way, that's vote.org's sweet spot. Like we are so good at finding these people who are already registered to vote and being like, you have to vote, you have to vote. And not just in the presidential, like you have to vote in the midterm because midterms, are more important than presidential elections. We elect the entire House of Representatives in the midterm election, and those people can really make your life terrible. (laughs) The president Mm. could be bad enough, but it's it's the House that's making, uh, um, you know, America not particularly great. So, but yeah, let's run this big contest and pit all the states against each other and be like, you could do better. I love this. You could do better, California. (laughs) Um, I would love that. Awesome. Well, Deborah, I feel we can keep going on about so many different things for a long time. I know uh, you're a busy woman, so we'll let you go. Um, But we will do a lot, you know, tons more collaborations this year. We'd love to have you on the podcast again. Um, And tell our listeners where they can find you. Vote.org is uh, brilliantly (laughs) straightforward. Um, So all of our our, uh, listeners should go check it out if they haven't already. Um, Anywhere else, any Twitter or, you know, hashtags or anything that you want our our listeners to check out? No, actually, we are not particularly active on uh, social media. I, as a person, am very active on Facebook, uh, not on Twitter. Twitter is a cesspool of angry white men. (laughs) We tend to stay (laughs) off of Twitter, uh, but occasionally cool things happen. Like basically our Twitter strategy, Obama tweeted about us last year, right before the Virginia election with no, with no warning. All of a sudden the traffic on our site, like was like five X. And then Ellen followed up with another tweet and we were like, we didn't know because we were not monitoring Twitter. And we were like, wow, what's going on? There's so much traffic. So instead of building our own Twitter presence, sometimes we ask, you know, cool people like Barack Obama and Ellen to tweet about us. So just just go to vote.org, just go to the site, it's pretty short. Uh, And, you know, you can always find me as a person on Facebook. I'm pretty funny on Facebook. You are. I wish more (laughs) of your posts were public because sometimes, uh, I shouldn't tell you, but I'll, like, because we're Facebook friends, and I'll, like, screenshot your friends' only posts and, like, bring them over to our (laughs) Slack channel and be like, Deborah's giving me life. I wish I could say the things that she says on Facebook because I've got a few million people monitoring what I say. Uh, but yes, yeah, thank that, you for everything that you're doing. I, <laughs> I'm off color as a person on Facebook. I have opinions. Uh, and you know how the <laughs> internet feels about women with opinions. And I don't, yes. I'm always like, stay to my face, home slice. And, you know, men are very brave behind keyboards. But uh, Vote.org's brand is actually neutral. They are so brave, so brave behind keyboards. Uh, but yeah, Vote.org's pretty neutral. We really just like, we're here to help you. We want you to vote. Right. We don't care how you vote. Just get out there. And yeah, let's run this contest. This sounds like a lot of I fun. I love it. Sounds great. I'm so ready. Uh, well, ladies, Massachusetts, I'm going to go do work. For you, rest that of the is country. less fun. <laughs> yeah. I, California, we, oh my God, sometimes we have the lowest turnout in the country. So I'll take California. 
Uh, I'm going to go. All right, Libby. Yeah, I'm going to see if I, I can know, get a meeting it. with the Secretary of State. Right. And be like, Alex, we, we can't lose. We can't lose. We need the bragging rights. <laughs> This is perfect because well, I'm already you. actually feeling like kind of competitive about this. Like this is exactly the intended thing. So I'm like, all right, there's got to be some more I people know. out there I can, that will get I can see the it. dashboard <laughs> in my head. I'm so excited. And, all right. And that's okay, what we thank you do with all these like engaged women, right? It's like, no, yeah. we're all registered to vote. Let's get competitive now. I love this. I'll be like, come on, California. Come on. We're going to win. We're going to have the highest turnout. That just sounds like a lot of fun. Okay. I'm going to go to work because I want to talk to you guys all day and I have to go do things that are less fun. Um, but go thank you so billboards. much for having me on the, on the podcast. Yeah, oh, my God. I know. I have, I have a proposal to, like, that's circulating to buy like 20,000 billboards this year. So I'll let you know if that works out. Amazing. Um, oh, I can't wait. Awesome. Thank you. Have a good Thanks, rest of your day. See you soon. Okay, you too. Bye, ladies. Bye. Bye. So incredible to speak with Deborah Cleaver of Vote.org. Uh, I met Deborah almost a year ago um, out at an event in San Francisco and have been, you know, I kind of like she said, like Vote.org is something that I just kind of assumed existed forever. And to meet the woman um, behind it and, and her team is incredible. It's just really inspiring. And uh, I'm just excited about everything that's in store this year, 2018, and, and everything that they'll do in the future. So thanks again to Deborah. And uh, now it's time for our call to action. Uh, and as I'm sure many of our listeners uh, know, this coming Sunday is Mother's Day, and it's a day that people try to spend with family and loved ones. I'll be spending it with my family, with my kids, also with my mother-in-law. Um, but many women languish in prison because they can't afford bail. Uh, and that's just this heartbreaking statistic that, frankly, I was unaware of um, until last year when I became aware of something called National Black Mamas Bailout Day, uh, which we're going to give you some information about. So uh, there's organizations in dozens of cities across the country, and they're going to bail out as many mothers as possible who otherwise wouldn't be able to spend Mother's Day um, with their families, and it's just because they can't afford bail. Uh, and so this initiative, again, National Black Mamas Bailout Day, gives incarcerated mothers an opportunity to spend Mother's Day with their families um, and build community through gatherings that highlight the impact of inhumane and destructive bail practices uh, all around the country. So it's important to have a little bit of context to this. Black people are over two times more likely to be arrested and once arrested are twice as likely to be um, caged before going to trial. And LGBTQ and gender nonconforming families are also targeted and incarcerated at even more alarming rates. And once they're in jail, they are significantly more likely to be sexually and physically abused. Um, so there's really a lot at stake in getting people out of the um, out of jail um, on bail. And we can make a difference by contributing to bail these people out and to also push against mass um, criminalization and incarceration. So um, a donation to the National Bail Fund can go towards getting someone out of jail or providing them with various other pieces, kinds of help that they need. And most of the bail money is ultimately returned. So your contribution actually can cycle through and support multiple bailouts. Um, so visit brooklynbailfund.org slash donate slash national dash bail dash out to give today. And don't worry, 
story. We will tweet that um, from at Pantsuit Nation uh, on Twitter so that you don't have to um, write that down. Um, but you can help a family be together this Mother's Day. And also when you give, um, tweet or post on Facebook or post on Instagram um, with the hashtag Free Black Mamas to let other people know about this. Um, they're raising as much money as possible to get people out by Mother's Day, which is, of course, this Sunday. Um, so this is a really, really great opportunity to support families across the country. Yeah. And you can, um, you know, try if you're listening to us on Thursday or Friday, uh, try and do it today uh, again so we can um, kind of collectively contribute as much as possible to getting as many mothers um, uh, out on bail for Mother's Day. And a hat tip to Color of Change, an organization that um, we greatly admire and look to for many calls to action um, for bringing this uh, particular issue to the forefront. And you can find out more information, um, just uh, Google Color of Change and they can, uh, they'll have lots of information yeah. about this as well. About this and other initiatives as well, yeah. Yeah. All right. So um, it's Golden Pantsuit time. Ooh. And this I love this Golden one. Pantsuit. I was excited to, <laughs> to get um, the preview of this one. Near yes, and dear to my it heart. Brings together a couple of my favorite things pantsuits and food. Um, (laughs) The James Beard Awards were this weekend. They're known as the Oscars of the food world. And it was a really important year for diversity and inclusion in the awards. Um, According to eater.com, which if you're a food person, uh, eater is like I don't know. I could live on that website. Um, they're in 16 major competitive categories where an individual, um, rather than like a restaurant or a company, wins. 11 award winners were women, people of color, or both, which is an incredible um, representation of diversity that I think does a lot better job of representing what it actually looks like in the food world. Sometimes if you watch just like television, you might think that it's all like white dudes running the show, um, but it's women, it's people of color. Um, and there are Best Chef Awards for each region of the country and the out- Outstanding Chef Award, which is national. And until this year, only five black chefs have been nominated for or won any of those awards, which which is ridiculous. Um, but this year, really important milestone was achieved because Nina Compton of Compare La Pain Restaurant in New Orleans became the first black woman to win Best Chef. Um, Nina comes from St. Lucia. Um, so let's hear her talk uh, to Food & Wine Magazine a little bit about the influences on her cuisine in her restaurant in New Orleans. I got a chance to do my own restaurant in New Orleans, which I always wanted to live there. And I said, why not? So I just picked up everything and I moved. When you get to New Orleans, it's like being in, in the Caribbean and you see French influence, British influence, Portuguese, um, slavery, a lot of slave influence as well. So for me, that's something that I grew up with. I'm like, this is, this is fun, this is my playground. I'm like, I'm just gonna make it everything that I grew up with and, and much more. So that's, that's the whole premise of the menu. Amazing, I love her. I um, was a huge fan of her you know, back on Top Chef when she was uh, one of the chefs that competed. And um, like you said, Courtney, it's it's an important milestone and one of those things where, um, you know, a little bit of a collective, like why is it 2018 and this is <laughs> happening? Right. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it's it's a huge moment and definitely worth celebrating and, and certainly worth uh, a golden pantsuit. 
Yeah, and I feel like it's worth shouting out also that um, there are a number of other important um, barrier-busting chefs who won this year, including um, Eduardo Jordan, whose June Baby Restaurant in Seattle is the first best new restaurant winner to be helmed by a black chef. And that's one of the most important and um, highly visible awards from James Beard, so that was a really big deal too. Um, So... Congratulations to Nina Compton. Um, Libby, I think we should take a pantsuit road trip to New Orleans and go to her restaurant. <laughs> so that we I can, will do that. You can check it if out. you insist, boss. I do. I do insist. <laughs> so congratulations <laughs> to you, Nina. Golden pantsuit. And um, yeah, just Golden just chef coat. Cooking. Golden chef yeah. coat. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Ooh, so many options. Oh, so that brings us to the end of the podcast today. Thank you so much to our guest, Deborah Cleaver, um, and to our team, Cadence 13. Uh, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and please leave us a review. It helps other people find the Pantsuit Nation podcast. Share it with your friends. Um, and visit us at pantsuitnation.org to learn more about our organization. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Pantsuit Nation. Uh, of course, you know, come visit us in our Facebook community. You know, 3.8 million people. There's new stories coming through new calls to action um, and uh, you know always a great place to check in to see what's going on in in the resistance and with other feminists Uh, and we will be back next week Um, I'll talk to you then Court oh and I don't forget yes this democracy democracy is your democracy democracy. (laughs) (laughs) so stay engaged go to vote.org and uh, make sure that you're registered get those uh, election reminders and we will talk to you next week sounds good bye Court bye Libby